LaPointe. And I'm Greg LaSala. And this is the JMT Podcast 2.0, June-ish edition. Yeah, so this will be our very first podcast that we're going to be doing together, us entirely. I think we have to uh, apologize for how our section sounded last time, but, you know, I'm going to go and blame that on uh, Howard and Dan. Uh, mostly think, Howard. I mostly, <laughs> yeah, mostly, mostly Howard. Howard. I think he uh, gave us, what, 12 or 24 hours to uh, produce that segment. It was it was a little bit like fellowship, right? It was like, well, I was like talking to him when we took said we wanted to do this. And I was like, man, I'm really nervous about like all the technical stuff. We're going to Greg call in where, you know, Greg and I don't know each other that well. He's like, dude, you have months to worry about it. The next thing you know, it's like, we need this tomorrow. So it it was a little bit like fellowship like that. Like, relax, relax, no hurry. <laughs> yeah, that actually kind of reminds me of a funny story I had during fellowship. And I'm sure all you guys can relate. Not to name names, but one of my attendings, we were doing a research paper. And he, uh, you know, we got all our numbers together and everything, figured out what stats we were doing, showed it to him. And he was like, great, I want your first write-up tomorrow. I said, all right, you know, what, the introduction? No, no, I want the whole thing written by tomorrow. Just give it to me. And then he saw my face. He said, don't worry about it. It's the first one. Just give me whatever you get in 24 hours. It's no problem. So naturally, I go, write it up, work all night on it, give it to him the next day. He reads it for five minutes, comes up to me, and then looks at me and says, did you take English in high school? Which case, you know, my very clever retort was, <laughs> what? And he said, this is unreadable. I can't even look at this. Get back to me when it's in English. But did you did you write it in like French, French or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I had a real good answer for him actually at that point in time. Can, can we say it on the podcast? <laughs> yeah, I think I uh, I hung my head in shame and walked away. But uh, I ended up getting it published. So to him, I write I do know very good English. <laughs> I do I I talk I talk English good. <laughs> That's good. That that describes my entire fellowship is hanging my head in shame. <laughs> Looks like you've been missing a lot of work lately. I wouldn't say I've been missing it, Bob. <laughs> so before we get started, we jump in to the first couple articles that we're, um, we're going to read to you word by word. It's going to be like books on, on tape. I think that it's probably important to point out some of the differences uh, when, we, when we do the show. So I mean, we're still working on segments, and we'll kind of figure out which we were going to place where, but I think we'll probably just jump in with some of the original articles. What is different, though, is that we want to have discourse with you. We want you to disagree, and being all toxicologists, that shouldn't be difficult. But, um, so, via Twitter, so I'm Jeff LaPointe, or at Lapicity, and Greg is at Greg LaSala. That would be a great way to go back and forth with us. I'm sure some of you won't be shy about it. Also, I think we, we want to have show notes. We want to have something that you can access quickly, and so there'll be, you know, some basic synopsis about each paper, and maybe some background information, and I think that that will be helpful going forward, too. So they have two different mediums to kind of uh, interact and look at the journal. Well... We're waiting. All right, Greg, where, where do you want to start? Uh, why don't we start with the ethylene glycol paper? Sounds good. All right, so the title of this was The Use of Rapid Ethylene Glycol Analyzer, a Four-Year Retrospective Study by Rooney et al. Now, as the title implies, this was a retrospective study, and the author's objectives uh, was to determine the utility of incorporating a rapid ethylene glycol assay for management of cases with suspected poisoning. Now, this rapid analyzer was used in place of GC mass spec, and was a serum study sent to the hospital laboratory, and therefore turnaround time was a matter of hours rather than the normal 12 to 24 hours we are all used to. The authors used an osmolar gap protocol with a cutoff of 15. For patients who presented with suspected toxic ingestion, 
an osmolar gap was calculated. If the osmolar gap was less than 15, no analyzer was used. If it was greater than 15, the analyzer was used. If the ethylene glycol was greater than 10 milligrams per deciliter, it was considered positive and the patient was treated accordingly. The results of the paper, there were 106 patients, 96 negative cases, and 10 positive cases. Of the 10 positive cases, 8 were managed with the rapid analyzer alone. There was one fatality, and that was a patient who had a level greater than 1,200 milligrams per deciliter. And then 8 of the cases received additional testing with GC mass spec due to propylene glycol interference with the rapid analyzer. The authors then go on to estimate the cost of the analyzer is about $8,000 per year, and they compared this with hemodialysis, which is estimated to be about $1,400 per session, and then compared it against the treatment course of fomepazole, which they estimate to be around $2,100 per course. The authors then conclude that the rapid analyzer was sufficiently sensitive to quickly rule out the presence of ethylene glycol poisoning. Now, Jeff, would you like to cover some of the limitations of this study? Yeah, I think first we need to say that it's it's definitely cool. It's definitely would change our practice if it all shook out. And then for a first step, I mean, while there are limitations, you know, obviously it's retrospective and, and there's all the, the trappings that go with that. But um, I think maybe the one thing that kind of stuck with me was the osmolar gap kind of algorithm. I don't know how you felt about that because... For me, how I manage these without without having any toys, without having any ability to get stuff back in a clinically meaningful time frame, is that I use you know pretest probability and I, I use strong anion gap and stuff like that um, as I go forward. But if you used the Osmore gap at just that cutoff of 15, potentially you could miss some. Like that's that's kind of the the biggest thing for me. I don't know. What did you think? Well, I agree, and they actually even point out they did have a case where they seemed to miss one where the analyzer was negative. It was this fifty five year old. Oh, that dude. Yeah, and the osmolar gap was less than fifteen. They had a negative rapid ethylene glycol level, right? Uh, because they had such a high suspicion, and then yet this patient had an elevated anion gap, an elevated lactate. And so he was treated empirically with fomepazole and hemodialysis. If the patient had a negative rapid sample and a positive confirmation, we know that there are limitations to the test that we need to really investigate. If the patient had a negative rapid test and a negative confirmatory test, maybe he had just metabolized all of parent and was all on toxic metabolite. Yeah, and you know the authors must have been kicking themselves when they got this data because that was the one. They didn't have a GCMS done and you really want to know is, you know, was the rapid ethylene glycol level falsely negative? Right. Uh, but we just won't know, and we can't know from this data here. And I think that, unfortunately, uh, makes us question whether this is sufficiently sensitive. Right. But, I mean, I mean, you know, if we if you could work this out, if, you know, I mean, going forward, right? I mean, it is what it is. It's a, it's a great first start. It's going to, if this ends up all panning out and the prospective research comes from this, like this is what we'll all look at to be like, wow, that was the, that was when things were coming together. But if you could, if you could really sort this out where you could just order the test in an hour or so, it came back, um, you know, time accepting of all the people in my lab who just throw things on the floor and say, hemolyzed. Um, but, but I mean, what a game changer, you know, like it, it wouldn't be limited to, you know, specialized centers or ivory towers that could get an EG back in like less than six hours. You know, I mean, that, that would be a, a great thing if it could all work out. But at this point, we probably need more. Is that a fair assessment? Agreed, agreed. Uh, you know, I think also another limitation which the authors uh, readily admit 
is the positive interference with propylene glycol. Right. Uh, and they seem to brush this away by saying that it's very easy to teach the lab technicians to analyze the reaction kinetics uh, and that they're very different between propylene glycol and ethylene glycol. Uh, this kind of comes to mind a funny story about, you know, when I went to my lab at my old shop, I wanted to understand how uh, the drug immunoassays were done a little bit better. So I went to the source and I started talking to a technician over there and I said, okay, you know, how exactly, you know, I know this is an immunoassay, but how is it exactly done? What what do you use? What reagents do you use? And the tech looked at me and she said, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know. It's the computer that does all of this. And it kind of got me scratching my head and made, reminded me of one of, you know, my favorite movies. Uh, you know, Jeff, I don't know if you saw Office Space when, uh, you know, the Bobs, the consultants were uh, talking to uh, Spakowski and kind of assessing. I love you know, that you know what, his name is Spakowski. Yeah, I love it. I, love <laughs> I, I will never forget that. But, you know, basically they're kind of going over and trying to figure out what his job was with the company. What, what would you say you do here? Well, look, I already told you, I deal with the goddamn customers so the engineers don't have to. I think as a, as a wrap-up, you know, problem that we all have, problem that we're often asked to weigh in on as, as consultants and even as primary providers, current ways of, of doing this are not optimal. This would be a game changer. And, you know, if this paper is showing its first baby steps through a proof of concept, that's great. If we're trying to use this as it's ready for prime time tomorrow, like, eh, we probably have to have a talk about it. But, you know, I think that this is something to keep an eye on. This is exciting first steps. All right, for the next one, is it is it my turn to choose? Yeah, you're going through this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose. All right, so let's do the naloxone administration in U.S. emergency departments, 2000 to 2011, by Frank et al. So this is a interesting retrospective querying of a CDC database called the National Hospital Ambulatory Medical Care Survey, or NAHAMCS. I think it's pronounced NAHAMSK. It's... <laughs> It's a European pronunciation. Yes. That's fine. And what they did with this database that I won't say again is they looked for anyone over 18 who got naloxone in the emergency department from 2000 to 2011 and anyone who had the discharge diagnosis, opioid abuse, overdose, or dependence. Within that, that big group. Now, this is, while this is a, a national CDC maintained database, the reporting is voluntary. So you don't know who kind of sent their stuff in. But over that time frame, you had 1.7 million visits regarding opioid abuse, dependence, or overdose. And in, of that group total, 16% of cases naloxone was given. We don't know exactly to whom and which group for why, but th those are kind of the raw numbers. So we never really know the reason. We know that naloxone administration increased as the time frame of the study period went on, which kind of mirrors our clinical experience with the opioid epidemic. And interestingly, my favorite stat of the whole paper, I don't know, yeah, tell me what you think about this, is in 14% of the cases, both an opioid and naloxone was given, which is kind of like dog lab. So that's like super fun. Yeah, that's, uh, that was some interesting thing. And you got to think uh, there was a lot of interesting data they just gave here. 
Well, I'm wondering if that has to do with coding. I mean, first, let's start off with yeah, 1.7 million visits and only 16% receiving the lock zone. It seems like a very low number. At the same time, I don't know if I should be happy because we know most of these opiate overdoses don't need naloxone. For right. God's sakes, no. Exactly, right? A sleepy opiate patient that's breathing great, awesome. Gift. A gift from the toxicology god. <laughs> you know, 100%. Because exactly. that's, the, that's the treatment goal, right? Like if I'm giving, if you come in, you've had a bunch of heroin, and you're not breathing well, you're hypoventilating. My whole goal is to convert you into a benzodiazepine overdose, right? Sleepy with normal vitals. Exactly. And so here you say like kudos. Practitioners are practicing well, right? But then you get this other thing that's a little strange and that is that for the diagnosis of altered mental status there was more they received more naloxone than the opiate toxic diagnosis right and that's a bit confusing so either we can say hey patients you know they were using it more as you know practitioners using it more as a diagnostic tool but i don't believe that's probably more hey patient was somnolent Let's give them some naloxone, which at this point, you know, again, that's inappropriate. We're thinking more respiratory depression rather than altered mental status. Right. So. But we would, we just won't know. You know, we just, we want to know that the data that I want to know that I, I could have missed. It's, it's both possible and probable that I could have missed it, but it, I want to know the amount, the, the number of cases in the opioid overdose database or the, that portion of the database that were given naloxone. I, I don't, the whole, you know, big clump. I don't, I don't know what to make of that. And then you could even, you know, like as the editorial that, that doctors, uh, Nick Connors and Lewis Nelson put forward, um, they were kind of wondering, you know, wow, we need more granular information. Yeah. That's all, that's all great and very, very important. But at the bare minimum here, I just need to know who, who was getting this. Like, cause if you're giving it, if you're giving it to the dependents and withdrawal crew, you're, you're just Satan. <laughs> you're, just, you're just mean if you're giving it if you're giving it to just the sleepy people you know like that's something that i can look at in my shop and say is that happening i can take that home yeah sure and i mean and the editorial i thought was good because uh yeah. first they kind of quickly reviewed what can happen with precipitated opiate withdrawal from naloxone administration you know they talk about this catecholamine surge which can lead to mi or pulmonary edema also there have been reports of severe delirium and severe agitation with precipitated withdrawal so you know you look at those those are huge risks which we're all you know we all as toxicologists know about but, you know, maybe your normal uh, ER docs, they're just starting to l learn the importance of that because those are greater risks than, like, again, just that sleepy patient lying in the corner, the respiratory rate of 10, but pulse ox in 94, 95%. Right, right. Yeah, that's what that's what I tell the residents. I'm like, you know, you guys play blackjack? Would you would you hit on a hard nineteen? No. No, you wouldn't. That that's what that's what giving Narcan to a sleeping patient with normal vitals is like. No, I will you're just admit, asking for trouble, dude. Jeff, I did split kings at one point in time. Everyone left your table, right? Yeah. Three people <laughs> got up and left. I was kind of shamed from the table. Did you win? I had one both hands though. Boom, buffet time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, the other interesting point, though, this editorial brings up, though, is that a high rate of both naloxone and opiate administration on the same visit, that 14%. That's the dog lab contingency. That's where we're just going to see what happens. Yeah, here, I, I actually thought that was more to do, you know, people, uh, patients were given too many opiates and then had to be reversed with Narcan. And don't laugh, you know, we've all been there. 
But they brought up a really good point, which was, you know, perhaps these patients did have respiratory depression. We're given naloxone in an attempt to avoid intubation. Right. That's and then, fair. And then after intubation, they were given fentanyl as sedation, which is completely reasonable. That's totally reasonable. If that, if that happens, if it happens the other way around, like, I don't know, do you use opioids for procedural sedation? Are you using like Remy fentanyl or something? Yeah, for procedural sedation, I always do. I always like to get the patient comfortable uh, before I induce them uh, with a sedative. Fair enough. You know, what can you take away from this paper? Look, you, you, the things that we know kind of already, but it's good to, it's good to see. We, there is a raging opioid epidemic. And if there are these kind of databases where we can draw some 30,000 foot data from, that's, that's helpful. I mean, in the editorial, there is an advocacy for more databases like toxic and that's, that's fine. But this, that doesn't discount this work. This work is important because these things are just there for us to look at. I would have wanted to know more about different groups or exactly what led to the naloxone administration. If all we get from this is just more objective data to take to, you know, people as we advocate for what we do and we advocate for our patients, more opioid issues in the emergency department, more naloxone administration in the emergency department. That's a lot to chew on. So just, Sometimes just another paper like this that I can have to kind of, you know, throw on someone's desk with the 30 other ones, that's helpful. It is, it is. And, you know, this also kind of shows me, uh, basically the subject does, that there's just a lot more teaching that needs to be done, not only within the ER with our residents, house officers, uh, pre-hospital setting as well, that, you know, naloxone's great, but there are some severe, severe, uh, you know, side effects that can occur with it. And that's very dangerous. And that really, this should only be given to those patients with respiratory depression, you know, somnolence, your normal GCS, that shouldn't really come into account here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, if we can educate people, especially, you know, the, the point that doesn't need to be made to toxicologists, but that we always end up stressing with residents is that, you know, opioid withdrawal isn't dangerous, but precipitated withdrawal is, right? Like, so, you know, iatrogenic withdrawal is. So anyways, but I, I thought that for what it was is is interesting to, to know about, interesting to read through. Mm-hmm. Dunzo. 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 So, uh, Jeff, what article do you think we should go over now? How about some How about some tasty lipids? Oh, tasty lipids. Tasty, tasty lipids. All right. So this article was titled, In Vitro Studies Indicate Intravenous Emulsion Acts as a Lipid Sink in Verapamil Poisoning by Cristal. Cristal. Yeah. Who doesn't love Cristal? A little bit of the bubbly. So the objective of this experiment was uh, con- to conduct an in vitro study, and it was to determine the mechanism by which ILE may reverse rapamil-induced cardiotoxicity. Now, a quick review, there are two proposed mechanisms of ILA. There are indeed. Yes. Group one, the lipid sink theory. I think this one is generally more accepted, and it states that infused intravascular lipids pull off the offending agent from the target tissues into the intravascular space and thereby lessen their organ toxicity. Then there's the metabolic theory that proposes that lipids increase fatty acid uptake of mitochondria in the cardiac myocytes, and they act as an energy substrate. Heart loves free fatty acids. Got it. Absolutely. So take it out versus free fatty acids. Got it. Yes. So the methods. Now, I will have to say these methods, somebody really geeked out. Yeah, it's high level. I say it in the most complimentary way because this was obviously somebody who's excellent at lab skills. I myself am not, and I'm going to try to simplify it. So part one of the experiment used human serum spiked with verapamil. The concentration of verapamil was measured by GCMS. The second part of the study used murine myocytes, which they placed in the solution with electrodes, and they were able to measure the calcium levels and current through the L-type calcium channels. 
third part of the experiment, the murine myocytes were placed in a chamber where intracellular calcium and myocyte shortening could be measured. Okay, three parts of the methods. Wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah, kind Impressed. of Impressed. Good work, people. <laughs> As for their results, for part one, when intralipid was added to the serum spiked with verapamil, it lowered the free verapamil concentration by 70%. Okay. All right. Step one's good. Step two, the authors measured verapamil binding to the L-type calcium channels and found rapid removal of verapamil from both the L-type calcium channels with the addition of intralipid, and this was in a dose-dependent manner. Now, importantly, the increased doses of intralipid had no effect on the L-type calcium channels in the absence of verapamil. So, so they're not bad. No, exactly. Not bad for you. Because there's, there's that no... case report. There's that case report where they just died, like right after it. That's actually cited. That's one of the. That's one of the articles where they just died. They exploded after they got it. So. Well, and as you know, that's always kind of been the crux of the problem that most of these are case reports, and generally we give lipids for people that are dying. So sometimes dying causes death. Yeah, imagine that. Sometimes dying leads to asystole. <laughs> dying is 100% associated with death. <laughs> true, true, and true. <laughs> true, true, and related. All right, I got it. Now, so the, the myocytes didn't explode when they got they got big doses of lipids without verapamil. Got it. No, seemed to be fine. And then part three, they found that verapamil greatly reduced intracellular calcium and decreased myocyte contractility by 75%. And they found that the administration of ILE rapidly reversed these trends. And again, it was important to show that ILE had no effect on calcium or contractility of the myocytes in the absence of verapamil. Very cool. Yeah. So the authors then go to conclude that this study seems to support the lipid sink theory. In the context of these results, I think that's pretty fair. Sink shuttle, right? So it's taking it, taking it to somewhere that's not hurting us. Where where it goes from there, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I think that look, this is this is obviously some very impressive work. Kind of a level, like a, a depth of basic science that we don't see a lot. You, you know, uh, this kind of stuff. It, usually, tox literature is a lot of case reports and stuff like this. And, um, you know, I thought that was pretty impressive. I will say that if you're going to put stuff like this in JMT and you're going to want us to go over it, I'm going to need you to use some smaller words. <laughs> like if you could just have like a highlights for children section afterwards so I can get a grasp of it, that'd be great. Absolutely. I, I would have loved to have seen who was reviewing this study because I, I readily admit I didn't understand half the methods. But if we could take their methods to be correct and the solutions they used to be correct, um, I think this show, you know, this has a lot of promise. Now, can we extrapolate it to in vivo? No, I don't think we can. But, you know, me, myself, being already a believer in intralipids, I think uh, this just makes me even more confident in just showing that, you know, in the absence of a cardiotoxic drug, intralipid really had no effect on both contractility or intracellular calcium levels. So you're, you're a believer? Oh, I'm a believer. Absolutely. You, you, so how do you, if you're, do you use them when people are still alive? Yeah, you know, I'm pretty aggressive with my intralipid use. Uh, if there's some hemodynamics instability, um, I'm a big believer in the octonal uh, water partition coefficient. So if it makes sense for the drug that the person was exposed to and they have hemodynamic instability, I would probably go ahead and use it. You know? so, so you just love it when it says... On the lab report for the other labs, like lipemic, that just makes you happy. Oh, absolutely! You know? I'm, I'm all over. <laughs> Get me my initial set of labs, and then I don't and it need says anything else. Lipemic, it's just like, oh, you guys are so hosed. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I'm that aggressive. I don't think, like, if I have a young person who's who's coding, who's you know, like perimortem, like with with a overdose, that I think I don't, I don't think 
that it's unreasonable. Like if I don't know the drug or I'm not able to calculate or, or look up a partition coefficient, I don't, I, that's not something that stops me at that point. I think that's probably, that's probably not controversial anymore, right? That's probably standard of care. If you're, if you're dead and dying from a potential overdose, this is a reasonable thing. You're telling me you don't have all the partition coefficients memorized no. by now? No, I have some flashcards. <laughs> I have some flashcards. I was thinking about getting a tattoo, but it's just not, hasn't come together yet. All right, fair enough, fair so, enough. But this is cool stuff. I mean, this is definitely something to, to put in your pocket. This is kind of going to be part of that kind of classic background journal club when you teach about uh, interlipids, right? Like just nice, good PLS1 style data on uh, on mechanism. That's fun. All right, man. What, uh, where do you want to go next? Uh, why don't we talk about a little intubation? Oh, yeah. Some intubations. Let's do that one. So that article is Poisonings Associated with Intubation, U.S. National Poison Data System Exposures 2000 to 2013 by Beauchamp at all. I think it's Beauchamp. Is it? Be wow. So, Because you were just in France. Yeah, you need to say it a lot more bougie. <laughs> Beauchamp. You were just in France, so you know that. That's very good. All right. Right on. Beauchamp et al. And this is a retrospective peek into the NPDS, uh, looking at the years 2000 to 2013, and drugs associated with, uh, or reported drugs, maybe that's better to say, associated with reported intubation. And so pretty, pretty interesting, pretty interesting stuff here. Hard to know what to take away from all of it. But so there were a little bit under 100,000 single substance exposures. And the big drugs that was kind of a surprise that we can talk about came out was just those atypical antipsychotics that were associated with more frequent single exposure intubations. And then for multiple drug exposures, they had a little bit under 230,000. So big, big numbers here. But those were associated a lot more with benzodiazepines and other uh, sedative hypnotics that resulted in you getting intubated. Also noted on there, TCAs, benzos again, and ethanol. So you know, some pretty pretty interesting stuff there. But I it wasn't what I expected when I read the title of this. I was like, ah, oh, everyone's gonna come in with like legit respiratory depression and like CO2 retention or something from opioids or something else. But what I ended up kind of seeing is like, oh, all these people were just kind of sleepy. It was. There was a surprising list here, especially, you know, the atypical antipsychotics uh, being the number one drug. Now, we all know the atypical antipsychotics cause a tremendous amount of somnolence. Uh, it's typical of them, but they don't really cause a lot of respiratory depression. Yeah, that's not something that we're, we really jump to like, yeah. mechanistically or something. No, so I, I got to think more of it has to do with lack of familiarity on the practitioner's part. Uh, there are a lot of new these drugs coming out and uh you know you get a patient in there who's completely somnolent and if they just go by gcs these patients are going to have a gcs yeah. less than eight and they're just going to lead to intubating them yeah that's it they probably didn't even know most of the drugs involved here so you know what i mean whether they're familiar or not it was just like you're sleepy sleepy equals two and i mean i know i certainly know there there are docs at my place who do the same thing you know it's not like and we don't know we don't know if someone when, like they don't have a gag. I'm really worried about area protection. And that, that's the other really hard part of looking at a study like this. One, you know, because, you know, me being kind of callous, I look at this and I'm, oh man, everyone's intubating people that are sleepy and that's inappropriate. But I don't know that, you know, intubation is such a subjective bedside thing that it's kind of hard to, to get in everybody's head, right? 
I mean, it really is. And then, uh, you know, it goes with just, I think, you know, more knowledge of the drugs going forward. You know, I mean, we're always taught benzodiazepines, right? Oral benzodiazepine overdose, you never get respiratory depression. Right, um, right. You That's definitely get somnolence. Yeah. I mean, those patients, they're zombies, right? But we never have to tube them. And I still know a lot of great ER docs, you know, who have a lot of experience who still might jump to intubation just because they're not as familiar with that, that, you know, doesn't cause respiratory depression. You give the patient a good sternal rub and they don't move. So you intubate them. You got a, you got a good sternal rub, right? Oh, great sternal rub. Again, if you don't hear the grounding on their chest wall, it's not hard enough. <laughs> where, where I trained, one of the older famous attendings would, uh, would smack on their belly. And kind of give you like a workout, man. It was it was outstanding. So so good. <laughs> I have to try that next time. <laughs> yeah, give it give it a shot. What do you think about what do you think about the kids and the clonidine epidemic? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's kind of strange, right? The most common drug that uh, children are intubated for is clonidine. I, I'll be I'll admit I didn't realize there were that many uh, pediatric clonidine ingestions. Uh, you know, I definitely know that it causes somnolence, and that for the most part. Naloxone can work, but it really doesn't in most cases. So sometimes you they get sedated so bad you have to intubate them. But I'm just surprised at the sheer numbers of them. Yeah, that, that's I felt the same way when I was reading this. I'm like, wow, that's it makes it you know seem like it's everywhere and it's what all they, they're just like rows of ventilators with children like little children farms on ventilators. And, yeah, I mean, I actually, I'm all about, you know, I can't wait till we get to the day when clonidine's not being prescribed anymore. Yeah, that'd be great. I really don't think it's a good uh, hypertensive medication. Uh, I don't think it's great for ADD or ADHD, which they're now prescribing it for. And it does cause sometimes these awful overdoses. So maybe it should be one of those drugs that should be by the wayside now. Yeah, it's one of those those dinosaurs sniffing around for a tar pit. <laughs> exactly. It can, it can take hydralazine with it as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Yeah, exactly, right? Just throw those out, both yeah, of them. Yeah, we'll be done with that. You know, and then, you know, then we have to get into the point of the limitations. This, again, this is these National Poison you know, Data Center data and of course they're very limited great for epidemiology but we have no idea why these patients were intubated right we don't know if it was for cns depression right. agitated delirium you don't know what it's for um and then we don't know did they have any adverse effects with the uh intubations right? yeah we don't have that crew either yeah or, or you know what it what would even be great too is who didn't get intubated who got sick you know of all the people who had a low GCS or whatever arbitrary thing we want to say they're they're somnolent or whatever and they didn't get intubated how many of those people went on to do poorly um that that would be good to compare well, you're never going to get that here no and again you know that's just the limitation with these uh this data study um with any of these data studies is that you know again they're great for epidemiology great for conversation uh, great for teaching too. You know, great for I, parties. I, you know, I, I can now teach, you know, other people say, hey, listen, you're atypical antipsychotics. You can't go by GCS. You know, be aware they cause somnolence, but not respiratory depression. Maybe don't be so quick to intubate these patients. So I think from this, we can get a lot of teaching, but there's so much more information, that practical information of why they got intubated because, you know, we weren't in the room why this occurred. Right, exactly. That it does limited what we can do practically. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not trying to, I don't think anyone's trying to say that poison center data can never be used. It's just, for me, I use it as a jumping off point. You know what I mean? For, for taking a, a deeper look at, at, at a little bit more specific data either that we might have at our shop or somewhere else and, and kind of helps me some, develop some ideas. You know, like that's, I, I'm definitely going to go back and start looking at our intubations and seeing if we can do some education and then what happens 
after that. Like that, that's interesting to me. Yeah, and I, I mean, I agree. I think that's what this article is great for. And it just shows we have a lot of teaching still to do. Yeah, very cool. All right, this seems this seems like a good time to to shoot on over to some case reports, and there's some fun ones. There's some fun ones here. I'd like to start with the Mescal paper. The the thing that I you know the thing that we talked about that I can't pronounce. <laughs> uh, let's get a little help here. Uh, what does Doctor Google have to say? How do I pronounce that drug? Ivabradine. I Yes, thank you. Acute on chronic Ivabradine overdose. Ivabradine. So in this case report, it's kind of interesting. So it's a drug that I hadn't heard of, and uh, hopefully we'll get a we'll get a chance to talk about it for a second. But they're talking about a a young lady, a 26 year old woman, who decided to take 250 milligrams of this drug at one time, and she's on it for she was on it previously. This is her medication. She was on it for POTS. Let's let's stop right there for a second. So uh, POTS, you know what that stands for? <laughs> yeah, this postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Kind of mm. one of those, you mm -hmm. know, dubious diagnoses that uh, we throw in there when we have no good idea of what's going on with people. I find it kind of funny. So we have this new drug that's meant for heart failure. Ivalbradine. Yet this 26-year-old's right. on it for POTS. Yeah. Thoughts on disorders like that aside, it's certainly not the heart failure that the drug was intended for. Like that's... I I doubt it, but huh. that's a quick side note. Why yeah. don't we continue? All right, so she's on this new medication for this um, this dubious diagnosis you're hating on. <laughs> <laughs> you're a monster. And um, she takes a, maybe she's sad because no one believes her. You ever think about that? So she's sad because no one believes her. Oh, and she's depressed her. Right, now you did it. You did it all to her. And she takes this medication. I will pray. And in, in an effort to stop her hypotension, and she uh, comes in to the emergency department about 30 minutes after taking all these pills and has a basically a normal heart rate, like in the 60s. And then about a half hour after that, she drops down to 31 beats per minute, and uh, but no changes in mentation, and her blood pressure looks good, and she responds to atropine. And it kind of goes on like this for a while. She actually gets a, a little, little bit of a soft blood pressure at some point, a little bolus of fluids, all good. Other coingestants all ruled out, all the standard rules to case reporting are followed. And, um, you know, 36 hours after kind of a couple dips in, in uh, pulse, she ends up going to psych. And then uh, someone ran a level for this. So good on them for finding people who run a level. This is always like the bane of fellowship, like calling places. Can you run it? I have a braiding concentration. And it was very high at 520 grams, yeah. 525 nanograms per ml. Not even that. I mean, they were able to actually get three levels. Yeah. Three hours post admission. They had a level of you know, 130, 120, and 110 nanograms per milliliters. And uh, what, you know, way to look at this, the therapeutic doses, they show a mean concentration of 9.7 nanograms per milliliter. So it's a big uh, one. Yeah, with a max of 25. So it was at least, you know, four to 10 times the uh, therapeutic dosing range there. Yeah. So, I mean, this is interesting because, you know, one, it's a, it's a drug that you know, I hadn't known a lot about previously and certainly still can't pronounce. Um, but maybe just to, for the people who are in the same sad boat as me to kind of talk a little bit about this drug and maybe kind of what it does. What do you think? Yeah, why don't you review a little bit of its mechanisms? Oh, I get to. I, so I have a braidine. I have a braidine. Is basically supposed to be a purely bradycardic, you know, purely chronotropic um, antagonist. So it shouldn't affect the ionotropy at all. Um, it works on these funny channels, which are in the SA node and the AV node mainly. And these are um, sodium potassium currents that, that handle 
inward current during these uh, diastolic depolarization phases. So the, those myocytes, they never, they never really have a resting potential, right? They just kind of like always up and down, up and down. So these start the next phase, um, and therefore they control the pacemaker. So that's, that's kind of a basic overview of what this does is antagonizes those. So it just should cause pure bradycardia. It shouldn't cause a bunch of hypotension. Right. And the reason this has been uh, FDA approved for heart failure is that by reducing the heart rate, it reduces myocardial oxygen demand and improves oxygen supply by prolonging diastole. Right, right. And so, you know, other things to know about the drug, um, there are some case reports of QTC prolongation and several reports of torsades, um, especially in the European database. So that's also something that they can cause at just therapeutic doses. And then if you're a metabolism fan, as we all are, you should know that these involve um, CYP3A4. Right, always important. If you ever have to guess, if you're a fellow and you're listening to this and you ever have to guess, Go 3A4. Yeah. You just automatically go 3A4, and then if you think they're trying to throw like a like a genetics thing at you, go 2D6. That's kind of how you roll it. <laughs> key points, key points. Remember that for your boards, kids. And so, the, you know, what's interesting is that the treatment um, that's in most of the case reports and that, that was seen here, atropine seems to be effective in most of the cases. There are a couple failures to, to atropine and a couple that get better with dobutamine and isoproteranol. Anything about that? Well, I mean, you know, in this case report, we have to look at, again, the uh, history. This is a healthy 26-year-old. Right. I mean, well, I shouldn't say healthy. She's crippled by POTS. God, you're uh, a monster. Yeah. So, you know, but we assume a healthy 26-year-old with a good functioning heart. So, yes, atropine work. Can we extrapolate that to our 70, 80-year-old, you know, who's hanging on by her last sympathetic thread for that, you know, inotropy to get her blood pressure up? Can we assume that atropine is going to work as well in that patient? I think likely not. Right. So it's tough know. to take. It's tough to take this to where you're going to probably see it. That's the you know the cool things about the case report. It's, it's obviously well done. They did a great job getting levels that are difficult to obtain, um, and it brings you know kind of a little attention to something that I haven't had a lot of experience with. But if you're going to try to apply this to where you're likely to see it. It's going to be tough because, like you said, you got a healthy, healthy patient on on the medication for like a goofy indication, possibly. Right, right. So we, you know, we have to be aware of that, and uh, if we get that sick CHFer, we might have to go further than atropine. You know, it's a drug that I certainly wasn't aware of, so it's good to know about. And you know, also what's uh, interesting, the authors do go on a point that uh, this medication does have a plateau effect. You know, they're, they're assuming at greater than you know at doses greater than forty milligrams daily. So if that's true, that's uh, good. And maybe it's one of those safer drugs. Um, they also found that at higher resting heart rates, the uh, drug had a more pronounced effect. Right. You know? Right. But I mean, that's interesting. You know, always it's like with the beta blockers. You know, with increasing with increasing doses and and bigger overdoses, they kind of lose their specificity and it's kind of like all bets are off. So it'd be interesting to see if we get an unfortunate case of an older person with a big dose, if that plateau effect is kind of just not seen. Yeah, well now it's something, you know, that I know about, I'll keep my eye out for. And, uh, you know, like with many drugs, now that you know about it, you're probably going to see it a lot more. Right, right, absolutely. So the next case report we're going to go over is by Ruziki et al., uh, titled Intranasal Fentanyl Intoxication Leading to Diffuse Alveolar Hemorrhage. 
Now, this case report was a gambler at a casino who was playing video poker. So good. And had a witness collapse. In fact, Jeff, can you give their first line? And uh, I oh think my, it oh, needs to be said verbatim. It, it is... It is the best opening line to a case report in modern history. A 45-year-old male with coronary artery disease, gambling addiction, and polysubstance abuse with prior use of cocaine, anabolic steroids, and alcohol had a witnessed collapse while playing video lottery terminals at a casino. <laughs> great line. Great line. So Amazing. That's the setting. And anyway, after his collapse, his initial vitals by EMS were found to be a heart rate of 142. He had a respiratory rate of 6. Pulse ox was 60%, and he had a BP 40 over palp. Blood was visualized in the nares and oropharynx. CT demonstrated diffuse ground glass opacities involving all lobes. A uh, TTE was done, and it was essentially normal. Yeah. Authors then go on to state that blood continued to be suctioned from his ET tube 12 hours post-intubation. A bronch was done on day two with blood found, but no source. And on day four, the patient was extubated, doing well. At this point, he admitted to intranasal fentanyl use one to two hours mm. prior to collapse. Nice. And kudos to the authors because they did do GCMS on the patient's urine as well as powder found in a green bag that he had on his person. Yep. In his urine, they detected fentanyl and cannabinoids. And in the powder, they detected fentanyl, caffeine, and quetiapine. Yeah. No. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's the holy that's the holy grail of case reporting, right? That you get you get drug, you get blood, and you get urine, and you can kind of do all sorts of, of fun stuff. Absolutely, it covered all their bases, and they then go on to cite previous case reports and case series to support this finding of pulmonary hemorrhage with fentanyl use. Interesting though, with all these case series and uh, case reports, it was all patients that were either pericode or dead. Because one of the case series were autopsy findings. Yeah, those were all IV. Most of them were IV, right? Right. That's the interesting part. Yeah. The pulmonary hemorrhage was associated with IV fentanyl use, not really insufflation. Yeah. You know, it, yeah, it's definitely definitely a super interesting case. One thing that I, I just kept asking myself was whether he got naloxone in the field. And they, they specifically say that he didn't get it during his hospital course, but we don't really know if he got any in the pre-hospital setting. So you know, he certainly could have some pulmonary injury if someone slammed a bunch home, um, but he came and intubated and everything. So it seems unlikely that they would have hit him with a bunch of naloxone and then be like, ah, put him down, put him back down. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And, you know, the, the only other real limitation is when you get this green powder and we're, we're testing it against standards, obviously, and we don't know. I mean, we're just, I mean, this is a pretty well done case report by great people. So we're, you know, assuming there wasn't just some orphan spike somewhere that, that no one explained. But, um, you know, you can only test against the standards that you throw up there. That's true. And I mean, you also have to look, this is from Canada. And, you know, it seems like almost every other week they're coming out with some new synthetic drug that they found, new synthetic opiate up there. Right. Yeah. Some kind of opioid or, or thing that we think acts like an opioid. So it's a kind of a scary, exciting time. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, either traditional drugs are really hard to get there or they just have people who are, you know, real interested in uh, just designing new things. I can't figure it out. Right. Everyone's got to be special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, well done and, and something to kind of look out for, for sure. Absolutely. Next time you get, uh, you know, fentanyl inhalation overdose, uh, you know, pulmonary hemorrhage will be a thing I keep my eye out for. And we were pretty sure there was no correlation with the video poker. Are you sure about that? I don't know. It's a dangerous game. <laughs> 
So now we can move on to the case files segment. Uh, it's always been one of my favorites from the journal. This is a case file from the University of Massachusetts Toxicology Fellowship Program, and it is entitled, Does This Smoke Inhalation Victim Require Cyanide Antidote Therapy? So this is a very interesting two-patient case series and discussion with proposed treatment algorithm in which they kind of give you two cases where one of them is, uh, one of the patients is a elderly lady brought from a fire. She was um, intubated in the field for low GCS. She's critically ill on arrival to the emergency department. She's hypotensive, tachycardic, and has already in the field received hydroxycobalamin. And the other patient that they present is a middle-aged gentleman who comes in with kind of like what I would describe as like meh symptoms, like he's not very sick at all. And so how to handle these two patients and in the context of could they possibly have cyanide toxicity. This is very well written. It's a very interesting topic and it goes through in a really great way, especially with some of the historical context as well as pathophysiology. And I think that, I don't know about you, Greg, but I think the most interesting part for me, besides, you know, raising awareness of this and thinking if we're missing a bunch of them or under-treating this, is getting to the, the treatment algorithm, which we'll certainly talk about. Absolutely. I mean, this article is chock full of good information. First, they kind of go over the mechanism of cyanide toxicity, how uh, it inhibits cytochrome C oxidase in the mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation, essentially making you an anaerobe. Right, uh, that's why your lactate will increase with this. They uh, then go over some of the how they describe hydroxycobalamin is the first antidote of choice, followed by sodium thiosulfate. Though they do talk about how in pregnant patients sodium thiosulfate's preferred. Why is that? Did they say why that? I don't think they do say. I think they just say that it's safer yeah. uh, in pregnancy than the hydroxycobalamin. Hydroxycobalamin, I think, is uh, is category C. Oh, is it? All right. Yeah, All right. That's right. And so that's important stuff to remember. They then go on to talk about the adverse effects of hydroxycobalamin, how you can get some hypertension, chromaturia, uh, pink skin discoloration. Uh, and then most importantly, how it interferes with a lot of common laboratory assays. Yeah, that's kind of the thing, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, if when I was reading through this, it, you know, they were saying that how sensitive or specific sensitive lactate measurements are. And there's several papers that looked at that lactate of smoke inhalation um, victims. And if you have a lactate over 10 was the French study. And some people have said, you know, to, to use eight. But you know what's 100% sensitive for being for dying of cyanide? Dying. Right. I mean, like, you know, you're very you're never going to get a well appearing patient in front of you who is, you know, consequentially poisoned with cyanide. Like that's just that that's that's a good test right there. So but if you if you gave hydroxycobalamin to everyone who came from a fire, you're going to you're going to have a lot of problems. Right. And I think that, you know, that was my one problem with this is that they seem to, the authors seem to go on the slant that we're maybe underdiagnosing and therefore undertreating uh, cyanide toxicity. Uh, they first start off saying how cyanide is detectable in the blood of almost 60% of fire-related fatalities and 50% of survivors in enclosed space fires. Uh, but they don't say whether that was, you know, consequential cyanide. Right. I mean, I'm sure they're right. I mean, I'm sure they're, I'm, I'm sure, that, you, you know, just by by fact that these things are going to come together, the carbon monoxide and the cyanide in any kind of fire setting where you're burning something that contains cyanide is going to, yeah, sure. But what what that means and what we do about it is where I was kind of like, oh, I don't know. Right. And, you know, and they then go in through this algorithm. They first use the algorithm used by uh, the EMS in Europe. 
uh, where they talk about evidence of smoke inhalation, okay. confusion or abnormal vital signs. Seems fair. Uh, patient unconscious, convulsing, demonstrates rapidly deteriorating clinical status. And, you know, those, you know, or in addition, they also evidence of cardiotoxicity. You know, I, I mean, these I can agree with, right? I've always right. been taught that, uh, you know, if somebody is hemodynamically unstable, they can have cyanide toxicity. But if they don't have any hemodynamic instability, they're not cyanide toxic. Uh, so those I agree with, but they take it a little bit further and they also recommend saying any patient who has, you know, along with these above have bradycardia or significant respiratory distress, they yeah. would recommend giving cyanide talk. Uh, I mean, they, they do a good job at defining significant respiratory depress, right? So they say, you know, tachypnea, bradypnea, um, what's the other one they say? It's uh, decreased hyperpnea. Hi, uh, hyperpnea. Thank you. So, you know, I, I think they do a good job defining that. So you're not going to, you know, look at this and someone's going to go, you know, doc, I can't breathe. And you're going to automatically hit them with hydroxycobalamin. But that's, yeah, that's kind of when, you, you know, when I got the sense of that is everyone coming from a fire. Right. Or at least anybody having any clinically significant, you know, fire inhalational injury. Right. And the other thing is that you know, this was, this is a look at who requires a cyanide antidote, but also kind of left out that these people are probably also carbon monoxide poisoned as well. In the case there is, as you're going through it, it's just such a good job. It's very well written. They gave me a blood gas of, of the patient, given the, the pH is 6.9 and the lactate's 11.6. Now they didn't give me an, any coximetry. They didn't give me a carboxyhemoglobin. Now, is that because the patient got hydroxycobalamin? in the field and it messed up all these values? Maybe, but it's a good idea to talk about that too. What, what I always kind of find important is that we do obtain some kind of blood before treatment because, you know, a lot of those lab values, and it's not just like, okay, wow, the magnesium's off and I don't know what to make of that or some of the, the, the bilirubin's affected. That's going to affect your carboxyhemoglobin. I mean, that's kind of a big deal. That's going to really affect the clinical outcome depending on whether or not you believe and you know, how to treat carbon monoxide. We don't even get into that. And maybe that's what happened here too. They're like, we're not touching that. And I think, you know, like I said, I, obviously the algorithm they used is going to be more sensitive, but I, I think they're casting the net a little too wide because besides the problem that you explained, you're not going to be able to get adequate lab levels after administration of hydroxide. That's fixable. You could just get it beforehand, but yeah, it should be mentioned. Right. And then the other problem is, is that, you know, most hospitals just don't come, you know, have that supply of antidote sufficient to be treating all patients that fit this criteria with hydroxycobalamin. There's just not enough of a supply. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just if if you stuck to this exactly, and I think that's what's so cool about these uh, the case file series, it just really uh, lets everyone open up a discussion. But if you stuck to this by the letter, you'd probably be treating people that didn't need it. Is that a fair? Is that a fair opinion? I, you know, at least in my estimation, it is. You know, again, I I was always taught patient is unstable or lactate. You know, and with a lactate greater than eight, then they're cyanide toxic, right. uh, and that's how I would treat them. But if they didn't have any hemodynamic instability, it was unlikely to be significant cyanide toxicity. Right. Yeah. My yeah. My my, my simplified. LaPointe algorithm is, you know, deteriorating or clinically unstable, consider in the right setting, normal vitals or well clinically appearing. It's usually a pretty sensitive test for, for dying of cyanide. 
Agreed. Uh, really great teaching paper. Great for a jumping off a discussion. If people email us in or, or email into us or uh, tweet back at us, what do you think? When would you treat them? Do you would you stick to these definitions or would you would you be a little bit stricter? If you could just go ahead and make sure you do that from now on, that would be great. Okay, what do we what do we have next? I, you have a rash, right? Yeah, so let's go over this. This was actually a great picture. Uh, the title of it was, What is this rash? It's written by Gleason et al. This terrific picture that shows general uh, body rash and mucocutaneous lesions associated with dress or drug rash with eosinophilias and systemic symptoms. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, and the authors go on to say uh, how this is associated with the aromatic anticonvulsants. Uh, the exact mechanisms are unclear, but believed to be due to immunologic response to arine oxide metabolites. Wow. Right. Ding, that's, ding, a, that's a board question for some. That is. Remember 100%. that one. They love that. Right. So, and they've actually found that, you know, dress has been associated with other drugs, but first it was found to be associated with the aromatic anticonvulsants. So that's the most common question you'll get. The rash is described as a morbilliform rash that starts on the trunk and then it spreads peripherally. And they go on to this main scoring system that's used called the Registrar scoring system. And get a diagnosis of dress, you need to have fever, lymphadenopathy in two sites, serologic abnormalities, so eosinophilia or thrombocytopenia, and at least one organ system involved. Yeah, this is this is great. You know, because it's like that classic visual, board relevant, it's clinically relevant, it's teaching relevant. So I loved it. It was, it was great to have on there. And getting you ready for that whole test of Tox Final Jeopardy called the board. I kind of put this in the category of those scary rashes I have to remember in the ER, similar to Steven Johnson syndrome or TENS. Uh, meningococcemia and toxic shock syndrome. Yeah, and that's what that's what try to get you on a test, right? Those those will be all the choices. So right, yeah, that was neat. Yeah, they do, and they you know quickly they go into what the treatment is, and it's really withdrawal of the offending drug. Corticosteroids are plus or minus. For this case, they had some liver injury, so the patient was started on NAC. And, you know, you can never fault anybody for uh, starting a patient on NAC with some liver toxicity. Right. Yeah, it was weird, though, because they stopped the phenytoin before the guy came in, right? right. And then he still had the symptoms. Yeah, bugger. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. Weird world. All right. Anything else you want to add about that? Are we wrap it up? Will you give me a little wrap up? or? So good paper, excellent pictures, and good review of a rash that I'm finding more common and associated with more drugs than just your simple aromatic anticonvulsants. So be aware because if this is missed, patients can die from this. So Jeff, to wrap up this podcast, why don't we go over the two position statements that were in this quarter's JMT? Absolutely. All right. The first position statement was written on methadone. Essentially, they, the academy starts off and says that prescribers should exercise caution while prescribing methadone as an analgesic and really avoid its use altogether. Right. When I read these position statements, I read them like redacted fashion. So like I only highlight what, the, what they're trying to say, but they have to be like appropriate and like professional and stuff, which are things that don't burden us. But yeah, don't don't do it. Yeah. Methadone use as an analgesic. Don't do it. And you're right. You know, they're really politically correct because they go on to show that uh, methadone is associated with a disproportionately large amount of overdoses compared to total scripts written. 
you know, they have that. It's known to cause QT prolongation. In fact, it's the second leading cause of drug-induced torsades, four-year analysis by the FDA. And there is a great substitute for it that's much safer. So you throw all those in together, and you have to be crazy to prescribe methadone as an analgesic. Right. These are so important for us because we can take something that's well-written, well-referenced. These are our weapons, you know, kind of against stupidity. <laughs> In the world. We, no, we do because you're going to have someone from a pain clinic, like just a pop-up pain clinic or a referring doctor or someone who's trying to manage some of these patients and they're going to be using it like that. And if you, they don't know you that well or you're just getting established, these are great ways to just print these out and be like, hey, let's talk about this. Don't do it. But, right. you know, you need a very eloquent, well-referenced, well-written way to do that. And that is exactly what this provides. So if there are people at your home institution who are doing stupid stuff, like giving methadone as a, as needed analgesic, look no further. If they are resistant to other literature and common sense, this hopefully will help. Yes, and support our position. So, well said. And let's cover our next position statement. Okay, and to, to wrap things up, we want to talk about the, the final position paper, the one regarding the safe use of fentanyl products. So, this is just another, again, another well-referenced, well-worded weapon in your ongoing battle against stupidity is that a fair is that a fair is that a fair sum up yeah i mean i agree with that uh it's one of those things really we have great alternatives uh really we shouldn't be prescribing this medication it's dangerous there's you know uh, there are a lot of risks namely that you know transdermal patches take you know 24 hours to start working so a lot of patients will stack their doses in the assumption that it's not working in the first 24 hours right right so we have like you know that delay between clinical effect and analgesia right yeah. so that you know that's that's kind of the thing and every single toxicologist i will be willing to bet has either a firsthand or a secondhand just disaster story of the kid who in the nursing home who picked up the discarded fentanyl patch that was found in the back of their throat on autopsy my disaster story is the the scrotal fentanyl patches I missed as a as a fellow and never heard the end of for a while. So you know, I mean, there's just wait, wait, wait. Please, nah, Kim, you gotta nah, elaborate nah, on that one. You just bit. gotta look. You just gotta check everywhere. Let's just say when you have a when you have a patient who's appears to have the the classic opioid toxidrome, you kind of can't figure out why. Just check everywhere. And was on the scrotum itself, huh? Well, it was you know it was tran you know peri scrotiferous. That what we call the taint. It, could, it was kind of a no man's land sort of peritaintal area. Anyways, I don't, it's I'm still getting over it. I'm still still in therapy about that one. But yeah, they don't let you forget stuff like that. Right, but you know, and there was a good point regarding you know discarding these uh, used patches. So these used patches can contain 1.25 to 10 milligrams of fentanyl, which is a whopping dose to adults. But you know, it's the infants that pick these up and chew on them. Right. And uh, so you know that that's always one thing that. If you are going to prescribe this, there has to be a lot of education to the patients on how to use it and how to dispose of these products. Yeah. I mean, maybe some of the toxicologists who do the pain management sort of thing will, will use this. But for me, this is kind of like a never. Like, yeah. I just don't, I don't use this in my practice at all. It, it's something that's just such, such a moving target and I, the patients are far out of our reach and just so many bad things can happen. So the, the other thing that it goes, that this goes over is the REMS that's recommended or underway for some of the transmucosal 
uh, preparation. So the transdermal ones, super long acting, really big delay between when you're going to get this stuff in your system and when you're going to get some kind of analgesia from it. But the transmucosal ones, pretty quick acting. So those are like your, your lollipops or your lozenges or anything like that. And there's some surprisingly, or maybe maybe not, I don't know, what do you, what do you think, that there's not a lot of fatalities reported with these. It goes back to you just don't get that delayed effect that you do with the transdermal patches. So in that sense, it's safe. People kind of get the effects right away. So, you know, risk of uh, dose stacking is much less. And then it also has to go with, again, the disposal of these, right? Uh, you're not going to get kids picking up, you know, these lozenges because hopefully they're kept safer. Whereas, you know, these patches, people dispose them and they aren't aware that they contain massive amounts of fentanyl. Right, right. On the downside, though, the other ones look like candy. Well, just yeah, mean. Right. So, but yeah. So another another well done piece for you to use as you go forth and and battle uh, cl- bad clinical practices moving forward. Yeah. So tuck it away. So that's going to wrap up this podcast. Uh, we thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did making it. Just a blast. Yeah, I do want to apologize to some of the authors. For some of the papers that we could not get to including the articles you may have missed. These were all really good. So if you have a chance, go on the JMT website and take a look at them. Uh, we just didn't have time for them. We missed them twice. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to uh, tell all our listeners that uh, you should take a look at our show notes. And also, if you have any comments, uh, anything that you agree with or disagreed with us, please send your comments to either at Lepicity, That's me. Or at Gregory Lasala. And we'd love to answer them. And then if we get any really good comments, our next podcast, we'll bring them up. Kind of a review. Uh, Unless we don't like them and then we'll just. Then we'll definitely bring them up. We definitely, we'll definitely bring them up. (laughs) So yeah, thanks for coming along with us on this one of the first episode of 2.0. And uh, you get to kind of grow with us as we do this. So if you have any hints, if you've done any audio work or anything like that and you really want to let us know, hit us up. And uh, we'll be uh, talking to you guys soon. Take care. Real soon. Bye-bye. I will bring you. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.